Hey, welcome to the Magnificast. I'm Dean. And I'm Matt. And this week we're talking to Drew Van Land, a PhD candidate at the University of Kentucky and a Christian guy who recently went to the big deal Chicago Socialism 2017 hashtag conference, hashtag last week, <laughs> hashtag uh, it's good to have you, Drew. Uh, but before that, we have some uh, podcast news. If you haven't listened to the last two weeks because you knew I was going to be gone, uh, you should because they were good podcasts. Uh, thanks, John, and uh, also Zach for filling in. It was really fun to like listen to those podcasts on the airplane on the way back and be on the other side of uh, this podcast. Um, I sound a lot smarter when I'm not present. Like when people say <laughs> that I would have something interesting to say about something, it turns out uh, I, I feel like way smarter than I actually am. Yeah, so. uh, most of Zach and I's conversation was like, uh, man, I bet Dean would know the answer to this question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, I don't. I don't know anything about uh, Catholicism or Leonardo Boff. Uh yeah, leave that to the professionals. Um, that's why I'm part of this, yeah. part of this church. I don't, have to, uh, I don't have to do that. Sacramental theology is so weird. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I will say, like, the only reason I go to church is the Eucharist, and I find all other aspects of it uh, boring and grating. So uh, <laughs> I don't know, that's my, like, one my one difference, I guess, with Zach uh, in particular. It's like, I just, like, don't like going, and I don't want to like going either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, church uh, isn't, uh, isn't always fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, more to say about that later in the future. Why don't <laughs> why we don't like going to church? Episode seventeen. Um, oh my gosh! All right, uh, what else do we have going on since I've been going, Matt? Anything, uh, anything exciting? Yeah, I've been saving this for uh, when you came back. We have a new iTunes review, which is very right. good. Um, okay, so uh, before before Zach and I recorded that podcast, he was he was telling me. Uh, that his favorite part of the Magnificast is when we uh, ridicule and mock uh, the people who leave us reviews. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, that's also my favorite part of the podcast. <laughs> uh, okay, I didn't really think of it as mocking. If uh, if any reviewers feel mocked, uh, I apologize. Yeah, or ridiculed. Um, we're, yeah. We are the ridiculous ones, not you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, it sounds like... Okay, so we have a new one, and uh, the new one is like very good. And the joke is that there's not much to mock in it, really. Um, so, like, uh, so this is uh, from uh, Alex uh, at Subject to Truth on uh, on Twitter, who I know and follow, and who is a good person to follow. Subject to Truth, follow that guy. Um, anyways, it sounds like he was like listening to all of the other commentary we gave on the other uh, <laughs> on the other reviews, and he just like made the perfect review. Uh, <laughs> the grading rubric has been set. Yeah, that's right. A plus on this one. Okay, so here's here's the review. I'll read it anyways because I like talking about myself and how good that we uh, how good we are. Uh, so the title of the review is very good. It's called <laughs> "Make Christian Socialism Great Again." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get that hat. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's a oh man, we should make those and then yeah. I don't know. Give them the red. Point. It's perfect. There's tons of red blank hats laying around. I'm sure left over from that <laughs> campaign. So we could just get those on the cheap. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> okay. So Alex uh, says after a somewhat rocky start, this podcast is quickly growing into something very solid and interesting. It's one of only a couple of podcasts that tries to seriously explore the boundaries between Christianity and left politics which the hosts do a remarkable job at and is necessary and is a necessary lifeline for faithful comrades otherwise lost in a sea of trap houses and other nonsense. <laughs> uh, 
Increases in production quality have really helped uh, listenability, which I'm sure will only continue to improve over time. I hope. I hope that's especially true. if you donate to our Patreon. That's, yeah, for that's sure. Right. That that <laughs> more the more money we put into our computer, the uh, better it sounds. Uh, okay, uh, minor quibble. Alex says, uh, most recent episode thirteen aside. Topic selection has been a little bit all over the place. That is 100% true. <laughs> I mean, holy crap. We talked about summer camp one week. Like, that is the most all over the place. Um, that was, it, was, it was a fun conversation for me and John, but definitely uh, <laughs> does not make sense in the overarching scheme of the podcast. Anyways, uh, Alex says, would like to see a mix of classic texts and or foundational discussions to balance out some of the more contemporary interventions. Overall, recommend highly. Uh, this is good feedback. I think that we should do these things. We should uh, We should talk more about the uh i don't know historical texts of yeah whatever. yeah let's do that let's make a commitment to doing that not next week but no uh, probably soon. not the week after either but yeah soon. yeah but uh, we'll think I, about it <laughs> yeah we i will consider it for sure uh i have like a a very good uh, if i do say so myself a very good knowledge of marx specifically and uh i would love to talk more about marx yeah can confirm that you have a very good knowledge of marx uh, yeah. I feel like I'm always like vaguely gesturing towards some kind of Marxist principle I like heard uh, in a dream at one time in my life, you know, some Freudian unconscious thing bubbling up and Matt's yeah. like, oh, yeah, well, that's, you know, 18th premiere like this page, <laughs> obviously, that's it. So. Uh, my favorite thing to do is to chime into conversations I do not belong in and then say, well, in the German ideology, Marx says that communism <laughs> is actually the movement against uh, like, you know, the overarching uh, history of capitalism. And then liberals <laughs> are like, I don't know, man, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i like it a lot i like knowing things about marx and we should do that and other historical things too i liked my, one of my favorite episodes that we've done is the herbert mccabe one with Derek. that was really fun yeah that was fun um yeah let's do that okay great thank you alex super good review a plus please send us your feedback also that would be really helpful i don't know it's good to know what people actually find useful instead of us just talking into the void i mean we'll do it we do do it but uh yeah it would be nice to do less of it um Speaking of talking to the void, really a reading group is a thing that's happening <laughs> right now as we speak, as you listen, that is. Yeah, um, by the time you hear this, you'll have missed the first uh, the first reading group, probably. But yeah. there's still time. There's still time to uh, to get in on this. So give us a dollar on Patreon and we'll start including you in the emails and you can uh, be a part of it. Yeah, if you don't know what it is, there's more information on the blog. But basically, uh, Matt and I just isolated some places where Paul Virilio, this Christian anarchist writer and thinker, uh, and a bunch of other things, uh, we isolated some places where he talks about his relationship to both Christianity and the left. And he's a really wild dude, uh, kind of a weird guy, but very cool and useful, I think. Um, And at the very end, we're going to chat with this guy, Jason Adams, who is part of the new center for uh, research and practice. Is that right? Or is it practice and research? No, I forget. uh, Research and practice. Okay. New center for research and practice. Anyway, he's actually teaching a class there on Paul Virilio right now. And he's written on Virilio in the past and interviewed him one time. So he knows what he's talking about. And he'll come in at the very end and kind of clear up all our our questions or whatever. So uh, cool opportunity for a dollar. It's just the best deal. (laughs) uh cool well it's good to be back with you matt thanks for holding me on the fort uh i had a great time while i was gone but we did miss you you're the only person we sent a photo to emily and i while we were gone uh so you should feel good about that i feel so good about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah man i'm I'm psyched you're back and i don't do this anymore by myself and uh it'll just be better now 
<laughs> the brochualism continues. The brochualism. Bernie, <laughs> Bernie, Bernie, Bernie bros over here. <laughs> no, that's not true. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie step bros. That's Ber- what I would say. Yeah. Like, maybe like, like we have like the same like dad maybe somewhere, but like our moms are definitely different. Yeah. Our moms are communism. Uh, <laughs> Mom-unism. <laughs> Mom-unism. Yeah, that's good. That's a good ideology right there. Yeah, good. All right, well, All right, let's cool. get into uh, it. Without further ado, yeah, let's just go straight to do. Let's cut this nonsense. Uh, <laughs> All right. So yeah, Drew. Um, maybe we could just start with you. What have you been up to this last uh, week, couple weeks? Uh, the last few weeks, I was finishing up an online class I was teaching um, for my alma mater, uh, Trinity Christian College, and I finally have all my logic class lectures recorded and online. So that's cool because I'm teaching it again in the fall. And now, if I have a sick day, I can just like have somebody put it on for my students. So, and it feels like it's kind of like solidified now. I've taught it for the last year and just to have a course that I feel like pretty good about, like, yeah, I I feel good. (laughs) (laughs) The next couple of weeks I'm going to be, I'm doing, um, actually all summer long I've been doing this reading list for my metaphysics and epistemology camps. Um, I'm in a philosophy PhD program, by the way. Uh, but I'm taking a big test in August. I'm studying for that and I'm teaching a class on, philosophy and science fiction in the fall so i'm gonna start oh that sounds awesome yeah i'm really excited it's my first upper upper level class that i'll be teaching so uh i'm putting together the curriculum for that that sounds super fun so what are you reading for a class on science fiction and philosophy yeah so i like to teach historically um and kind of uh bring out the thematic distinctions along the way um rather than teaching in kind of a topical manner so i'm i'm trying to do two things at once in that (laughs) Uh, so we're going to be covering kind of the history of the last century of science fiction, um, kind of the, the high points, um, starting with kind of the, I mean, probably talking a bit about like H.G. Wells and stuff, but probably not reading any, and then getting into kind of the classics, Asimov, and then moving into the, um, the kind of counterculture era and the growing kind of anti-technological uh, developments at sci-fi kind of the, the more cynical approach and then uh moving into some more kind of i guess what you call intersectional um writings by like authors of color and and um women and where those issues of intersectionality kind of arise so we'll be reading some octavia butler and that's the historical sweep of sci-fi and then i'm going to be pairing with each of the readings um kind of a historical uh, sweep of philosophers. So we're going to read, I'm not sure if we're going to read the, the entirety of 1984 by George Orwell, but we'll at least read part of it. And so I'm going to pair it with um, Wittgenstein's uh, philosophical investigations. We'll be talking a bit about uh, language games and things like that. So um, that's kind of my, my plan for that course. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I would take that class. Yeah, sounds rad. 
Uh, <laughs> one time I got to teach this really cool honors seminar that was, uh, well, we read, um, I don't know, a handful of Lovecraft stories and nice. then uh, read Eugene Thacker's the, the Horror Philosophy Trilogy books. It was kind of something similar, but it wasn't as historical. But it was cool. So same same idea. Science awesome. fiction as philosophy and philosophy of science fiction kind of stuff. Yeah. I was trying to find a way to fit some Lovecraft in, but I don't think we'll have time. But, yeah. It's yeah. a it's a whole wild ride that you have to do. <laughs> uh, Matt, what are you what have you been up to? Uh I've been planning this summer class I'm teaching. Um I got uh, I got the opportunity to, to, to like redesign a ton of my cor- or my uh, department's curriculum. And uh, I, the, the, the biggest amount of work has been like uh, redoing uh, the intro level media studies comm class. And uh, I, I get to teach it online this week and for the rest of the summer. So that's been occupying a ton of my time. Um, so just been doing that basically. Lots of like online class designing. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Dean, fun. how was your uh, how was your vacation? Oh man, uh, I was telling Matt last night. And we were just chatting that like it was so good that I feel bad talking about it, um, <laughs> which is a good a good problem to have. Uh, yeah, it was cool. I spent two weeks on Maui in Hawaii with uh, some family. My brother lives there with his wife and kids, and uh, yeah, it was it was totally absurd, just like ridiculously good. All the things were good. Uh, it's like the first vacation I've ever done on my own where like nothing monumentally wrong happened. Uh, you know, like I didn't end up staying with like the wrong person on an accident or like paying too much money for something or whatever. So yeah, it was crazy good. Um, I don't know. Learned a ton of stuff about like Hawaii and, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of interesting colonial political history that is still very alive there. And, some of my family's really involved in that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was fun. Um, now I'm coming back to my real life and trying to figure out all the loose ends that I didn't tie up before I left and figuring <laughs> all that out. So my brain is, like, basically just complete, like, scrambled eggs right now. So we'll find out. After this, after we're done recording this podcast, I'll figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> Dang, man. But totally worth it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel too sorry for you. Yeah, you, you shouldn't. No one should feel sorry for me for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of like uh like credit that the world has given me for a while that I'll be paying back. So. <laughs> yeah, good. You should. <laughs> uh so Drew, one of the thing you did uh recently, which is why we're gonna talk to you on this podcast, is uh you went to this socialism twenty seventeen conference in Chicago. Yeah. We're gonna ask you a bunch of questions about that. But maybe you could start off just telling us a little bit about uh, what it was. Like, what does it do? Who does it? Uh, who was there? You know, just the general. For people who've never even heard of this, which was me before, like, January or something. What the heck is going on? Yeah, likewise. This was this came on my radar earlier this year. And at first I thought, oh, awesome. That's so close. And my second thought was, oh, that's, like, not good for me for a number of reasons. Mostly because <laughs> I have, like, two three-year-olds. And then I saw that they have free childcare, and so I pitched it to my wife that, like, hey, do you want some time to go hang out with your friends, and we can, like, you know, stick the kids in a nursery, and um, that worked out really well for both of us, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was the big draw. That's easy and to then, sell. Yeah, but what it is is, um, well, I, it's not the only kind of congregation of socialists in America, thankfully, but it is one of the most visible, I think just because the left has been in retreat for so long. But I think in the last couple of years, um, 
especially since the Bernie campaign. But, you know, as um, some movements have picked up steam that we'll talk about uh, in this episode, um, socialism is kind of back on the horizon, back on the agenda. And so even though this is a conference that happens every year, at least for the last, I don't think it's been going that long, maybe since 2013 or so, but this isn't the first one, even though I hadn't heard of it before. But it's put on by the ISO, the International Socialist Organization, which is kind of a, a Trotskyist um, American uh, organization of socialists founded in the late 70s. And it was co-sponsored by the International Socialist Review, um, Haymarket Books, Jacobin Magazine, and uh, the Socialist Worker newspaper. And it was just a wide-ranging series of talks which were broadly... Um, connected through the slogan, build the left, fight the right. It's hmm. a pretty, pretty good slogan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's cool, man. Well, um, yeah, I didn't really know about it until very recently as well, but it looks like, yeah, it has been going on for a while. So um, besides like the free childcare, which is very nice, actually, all conferences should do that. That's such a good idea. <laughs> um, like why, why did you want to go? Were there any like strong ideological reasons or, uh, just just going for the fun of it. I don't know. Why, yeah. uh, why'd you show up? Well, I think I've, like a lot of people, have been really radicalized since the Trump election. I mean, I think uh, philosophically, I've been there for a few years or been moving in that direction. Um, I mean, I've been drifting leftward since college, you know, starting, you know, freshman year as a you know, very conservative, um, you know, traditional... Uh, you know, Protestant, and then moving into libertarianism, and then kind of uh, your centrist liberalism. And I think now I'm I'm pretty far left wing on most issues. There's a few holdouts that I think um, make sense within my uh, faith and worldview. But um, I guess I consider myself a fellow traveler with most of these radical currents um, most of the time, and so I. Uh, just after the election, I joined a local group of socialists here in Kentucky called the Kentucky Workers League. And um, just because of school and family commitments, I'm not able to be that um, invested. Like today, they're actually, uh, they have a planning session for kind of the upcoming year and stuff. So I try to keep abreast of what's going on locally. And there have been, you know, a number of protests kind of in conjunction with national um, protests and stuff. But then there's also ongoing movements and, and um kind of a desire to build dual power institutions at a local basis in solidarity with other um, national trends and international trends, really. Um, so anyway, that's kind of where I am. Um, I think I, by nature, I'm a pretty theoretical person. I'm, I'm a pretty nuanced person and more interested in ideas than actions. And I, I think the older I get, the the more I realize how privileged and kind of stupid that is in a lot of ways and so <laughs> kind of forcing myself to get out of my comfort zone a little bit more and um i mean i'm studying social and political philosophy so uh but i'm i have very little background no background really in activism of any kind so um i'm trying to change that that's cool so this conference was kind of a window into what those people are up to what movements on the ground are up to um do you feel like it was profitable as like somebody dipping their toes into that domain of socialism you know beyond the books on the ground do you feel like it was pretty productive in that direction oh definitely yeah 
it was, uh, I, I think just being there and kind of catching the fire, it, what was cool is um, being in a room full of people who were involved, if not kind of leading some of the uh, kind of resistance fronts that I, I've been hearing about across the country, kind of the airport uh, shutdowns, the uh, response to the killings in Portland, um, things of that nature, people who are, are very invested in these communities where things are happening, you know, it, in this like politically um, explosive time. And to have, you know, people from every corner kind of gathered under one roof felt really uh, electric. Yeah, uh, I followed along on Twitter quite a bit and uh, sort of surprised about how many people were there, just like the just a crazy amount of uh, diverse left groups, I think, had some uh, uh, some people there. So that was interesting to see. Yeah. I appreciated that you talked about catching the fire. Uh, Matt and I were looking at the website earlier for the conference before we were chatting, and uh, so many of the pictures looked like Christian youth conferences, like Acquire the Fire or something. It totally <laughs> <laughs> Right down to, like, the chants before the speeches. Like, Oh, my God. Yeah, it was, like uncomfortably akin to youth group, which are, you know, that kind of, uh, scene, which never really resonated me with me as a youth. Um, and so it's, it's a little strange as a 30 year old, like, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I saw like all the pictures of people with their fists in the air, uh, and their heads down just actually reminded me so much of this kind of altar call experience, uh, that I've been to in youth groups. And yeah, I was just cracking up thinking about that, you know, the socialist altar call to, uh, I don't know, convert, repent to convert, have uh, socialism as your true, <laughs> your true savior. Uh, I don't know. That seems very funny to me. Well, so that actually brings up something that's that's really important to me. Um, and I think it's the conspicuous lack of uh, faith traditions there. There were definitely, um, I mean, visibly Islamic activists who were there. Um, I didn't hear, not, I mean, I can only hear a fraction of the, the speeches anyway, Um it didn't seem to me like even among other faiths, there was a faith-based um, kind of impetus towards these issues. Um, definitely not from Christianity. And so that to me just is tragic. Yeah. And um, it, it, it's detrimental to both sides, I think. And so I, I feel like, uh, well, I remember reading a, there's a, a Kentucky um, historian or archivist who's been doing research on the history of uh, the left labor movement in Kentucky and Appalachia, you know, throughout the early 20th century. And he's talking about the, um, the Christian socialist newspaper, which had been, um, I think run out of Chicago, but it was, you know, being distributed down here. And I'm like, we need that. Like that's, <laughs> I want to produce that. <laughs> socialism 2018 yeah, yeah that's exactly. right they should invite us to come speak there i think <laughs> I'm, they had all kinds of people man i you could totally get on the docket i don't, I don't right. think that's that's uh that's on the agenda now <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i actually wanted to ask you about that sort of your experience as a person of faith there it's interesting that um there weren't a lot of visible Christians. Um, it's funny because we've been talking to some other people involved in leftist movements over the course of this podcast. And uh, one thing that struck me was when we talked to Derek Ford, who's a member of the PSL, uh, the Marxist-Leninist Party, he was saying, you know, there are people of faith in the party, but for strategic reasons, that's not really an explicit 
you know, thing that people talk about um, because it's not about that for them. It's about, you know, building that movement. And if it turns out that you have sympathies on that, then that's great. Like, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> what did you think about, uh, I don't know, that invisibility of people faith and as a person trying to navigate those relationships yourself? Like, how do you feel as though people, how, how would you have liked to see that faith manifested in a place like that conference? Mm. Well, I think coming from a place um, like ICS, uh, where, I mean, that's where, you know, we got to know each other. Actually, we didn't even get to know each other at ICS, but, you know, through people in and around ICS. But yeah, quick footnote, ICS, Institute for Christian Studies, that's where I go to school and also where Drew went to school. (laughs) um, So I was introduced to a lot of leftism from an explicitly theological vantage point. Um, The... I mean, you guys have talked about some of the more uh, maybe communitarian elements, um, the Hauerwas Mafia, as they talk about on Homebrew Christianity. <laughs> That's probably where I'd more locate myself. Um, but leaning into more kind of explicitly, uh, you know, socialist movements. But I've just been exposed to so many left-wing strains of, of Christianity in particular, but also some other religions, um, that to me it just seems like, well, there's so many people he, you know, that I've I've come across through faith that they have to be out there, they have to be involved in these other organizations. Nobody is just a member of, you know, one you know, you know, we we live multifaceted lives. And so it's just weird to me that there wasn't more of a presence in a group like this. It's possible that the ISO by its nature, like there's something self-selective about a lack of, of um, yeah. faith input. It's possible that this lineup this year just didn't happen to display that in a way that maybe other years have. Um, any number of things could be possible. But um, it's it just seemed tragic to me, I think, because it's uh, in much the same way that the left <laughs> talks about the working classes um, who... They talked about how like a third of Trump's voters were working class, so not as many as people talk about, but it was there. But they're like, those are our people, right? Like the, they should not be drifting right. And I think I feel the same way about uh, faith traditions, at, at least you know, uh, Judaism and Christianity and and uh, Islam, which I'm more familiar with than than Eastern uh, religions. But like, these should be our people, right? That like these should be our concerns. There, sh- why is there this kind of social gap yeah that's really interesting huh so it seems it seems like um it would actually be beneficial though to have more of a explicit sort of like faith element at these kinds of conferences um i just think there's enough sessions that uh you could probably have a a series of breakout sessions or at least a panel i think it would be interesting to have a panel yeah uh, with explicitly uh religious um activists and thinkers well, if for if for no other reason, just just that, like, um, I don't know, working class people. I mean, people of all all classes right. have like have some type of like religious desire or it's a religious element in their life. For yeah. for um, an emerging left in the United States, it seems essential to have to talk about that. Like finding a way to talk about that. Just leaving it, leaving it, like just hanging, doesn't seem like a very good strategy. Right, and I think I mean to think uh, in terms of demographics, I I think that communities of color have never lost sight of that in their organizing. And, um, I think as people are rediscovering like the white working class, even though that is not by any means equivalent and 
you know, I, I think you can overplay that, but we are remembering that there's a segment of society that has been downtrodden and, um, kind of crushed under capitalism, um, in similar, if maybe not as extreme ways as, as other demographics. Uh, but those, you know, elements of the working class where faith is still really important, but it's not the, the same level of, I guess, what we would call the social gospel has not been uh, present or ubiquitous there in the same ways that maybe it has been in, in certain sectors of the black or Latina com- uh, communities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I think, too, about how, especially in the 1960s, there are so many energizing voices that were people of faith explicitly and found ways to kind of navigate those tensions in their own lives between, I don't know, whatever their church might be saying, uh, and then whatever their society is saying. And, you know, really wrestling through the contradictions and the sort of welcome cooperations between those two things, it just seems as though having a giant conference of socialists would be a really useful uh, way to kind of cross-pollinate those two things. I like that you said earlier that uh, it would be beneficial to both sides to have that conversation. I think one thing we've sort of explored already on this podcast before is how uh like there are good critical moments where leftists ask important troubling questions of christians uh and vice versa you know there are very good critical moments where christians have concerns uh and are formed to have certain concerns that might not be on the radar of particular uh uh movement builders or whatever so yeah, it sort of seems like a, a no-brainer in a certain way, but of course, it's definitely not. It's a big brainer, I feel like. <laughs> Galaxy brain, yeah. universe brain. Do you guys, <laughs> Galaxy brain. Do you guys um, find yourselves more in conversations with like non-religious leftists, um, trying to uh, remind them of the, the space, the possible space for um, leftist people of faith, or vice versa? trying to make leftist arguments to uh, people who faith who, who wouldn't see that uh, possibility arise? Uh, well, I work at a Christian university. Um, okay, so I, let me guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, mostly trying to convince people of faith that they should think about like uh, leftist struggles <laughs> more explicitly. Um, sure. They are oblivious to them most times. Right. I'm not even talking about students because uh, the students actually... No, no, most of the time. I'm talking about my colleagues. Yikes. <laughs> well, the way yeah. I would answer my own question has probably changed since um, shifting from uh, Christian schools, my alma mater, uh, you know, my, my undergrad and my grad uh, at ICS, and then teaching at my alma mater, and then coming to University of Kentucky, where my friends here are almost entirely atheists, and, you know, uh, I'm having very different conversations than I was a few years ago. Yeah. Sorry, Dean, were you, were you going to answer? Yeah, what does that look like for you, um, studying uh, social movements as a person of faith in uh, Rand Paul's Kentucky? <laughs> um, so Lexington is is kind of a, a blue oasis. Um, I mean, I hate the the blue red colors, you know, to indicate. Like, I always have to think which one means which because <laughs> red is not Republican, right? Like, red is, is leftist. Um, it's been so we moved here. In August of 2015, got our voter registration. I say we, my wife and I, we got registered to vote almost immediately and voted in the gubernatorial election when Matt Bevin got elected that fall. And he's one in a series of these Republican governors who are just dedicated to turning their states into, you know, Greece, basically. Yeah. Um, and, you know, imposing austerity and, and slashing 
benefits and whatnot. So um, Lexington has been, I mean, we had maybe, they estimated maybe 5,000 people here at the Women's March um, downtown. So it's a really, it's a pretty small city, which is perfect for me. I really like it. But um, there's a significant liberal sensibility. And among those, there's a contingent or cadre of, of leftists. So um, which, of course, you'll probably get at any university. Um, but even outside of the, like, the philosophy department and the geography department and the sociology department, um, where there's, um, like, we had this radical philosophy conference hosted at UK last fall. Um, so there's, like, campus leftists, but then there's also community uh, leftists working in um, kind of beyond your standard D- Democratic Party um, activism or whatever, so. Yeah, and like as a person of faith navigating those spaces, uh, do you find it sort of difficult or uh, surprisingly not difficult to, you know, speak that language or whatever? Yeah, one of the first people I met here was an assistant pastor who uh, is like a Hawarwasi, an anarchist, um, like kind of a John the Baptist type, like in, in terms of look and appearance. And, uh, you know, his favorite thing to do <laughs> He wears is to, a clothes made of camel hair, is that what you're saying? I, it's like two fashion steps away from that but um you know his favorite thing to do is to hang out with like street folks and um so that was and my church is all about um kind of racial justice and uh so there's really like i feel like we have my, my wife and i have found like the right communities in a short amount of time within our city i've been thinking a lot lately of um and, and so then last year after the election i joined this more kind of radical group um, but I've been thinking more recently about small town life, which is where I'm from. I'm from a small town in Iowa of like 2000 people. And as we were driving back from Chicago yesterday, we we're driving through Indiana and stopped for ice cream in a town very similar to the one I grew up in. And I was thinking, um, kind of ruminating on a lot of the, the things I had learned about, um, I'd gone to a session about the, it, it was it's a group, uh, an activist from the group called the Midwest uh, movement to stop the clan or something like Midwest network to stop the clan. That's good. Who had <laughs> <Cool>. been really <laughs> active in Eastern Iowa and some other States, um, in the nineties in shutting down the Ku Klux Klan, kind of moving, trying to make inroads and, um, thinking about n- knowing that Indiana has a history of, of clan activity and thinking about like, what would it look like to live in a small town and try to be a leftist, not just a liberal, but, um, and I think one of the, the greatest losses of the last century has been this the, the lack of, of stories and historical awareness of the inroads that socialism made in the Midwest and in Appalachia and in flyover country, basically, right? That it's not the province of kind of the, bourge- or not, the, the, the bohemian uh, urban enclaves. Right. But that this is really it's been a movement of the people like outside of the uh, urban proletariat or whatever. Right. And I think we we haven't just coincidentally lost access to a lot of that. It, it was systematically um, erased from public consciousness. And I think a lot of good work is it has been and is starting to be done to reclaim that. Uh, that's really cool. That was a, uh, Dean- a long exercise. Yeah, no, but uh Dean and I were having this conversation last night too about uh, organizing in small towns and uh, how difficult it is. And I don't know. Um, I live in a super small town, and there none of it's happening here, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it's really frustrating. So 
that people are thinking about that is very good. There's also, um, I, I think, I, I think I'm like uh, pretty sure this is true, but like the the next town over from us has a active KKK sort of uh, situation group tr- troop, and uh, I would love to know how to stop them from being the KKK. That'd be awesome. I'll have to I'll have to check that out. <laughs> yeah, there was a rally that was um, held in uh, Eastern Kentucky recently called by the the traditional workers traditionalist workers party which is like a white supremacist yeah. organization um but that to me seems like exactly the kind of thing where the the way to go about shutting it down is it's not just to tell people to stop being racist but to listen to okay w- racism has been a constant in american life right and this was a theme repeated a lot at the conference too that like um racism is nothing new under Trump, right? Why are these forms of racism like becoming more explicit at this moment? And th- they're not reducible to economic concerns, right? Like it's it's not as if race is this um, epiphenomenon just on top of a, an economic, um, you know, it, like infrastructural uh, base. But the movements in those economic, you know, tectonics, uh, they tremble at the racial level. And um, I think getting people to recognize that people like uh, my parents. I mean, I was talking about my mom with this uh, earlier today. She's asking about uh, what can we do to fight racism in in Northwest Iowa or whatever. And when <laughs> I was talking to my wife, and our, our first thought was, well, maybe just recognize the existence of structural systemic racism. I mean, that it, as a uh, an ideological shift. I mean, that is such a um, it's a big hurdle to clear. Yeah. It, it seems like Christianity should have like a huge play in this though. Like it's my assumption and and I don't think it's a wrong assumption though. Um that like people in smaller towns and rural spaces are more religious. I don't know, if more religious is the right word, but like there's more of a latent Christianity that's like sort of still stuck around. But yeah. it, it seems like our Christianity should make us really allergic to these things, um, to to racism and like especially structural racism. But it feels like we just right. we just miss it so often um, because of like sort of like the way that Christianity has been co opted by, I don't know, um, white supremacy, the bourgeoisie, right. etc. Yeah, and I feel that way particularly as someone coming out of a Calvinist tradition, and like I'm loosely a Methodist now, um, going to a UMC church, but uh, for Calvinists there's such a sense of um, like ontological guilt that precedes you. Mm. And I think a lot of progressive Christians are really allergic to that for some good reasons, um, because that's a way to, you know, um, keep people down and, and then uh, exploit them spiritually maybe. But I think it's also a really good way to help people think about the way that we are complicit in systemic evil um, in ways that, you know, okay, I never owned slaves, but that doesn't mean that, that somehow I haven't benefited from a slave-owning culture, right, or slave-owning ancestors if if I have them. Um, I'm not aware that I do, but, you know, that doesn't get me off the hook for the kind of society that I, I live in. So, um, it, yeah, I, I think you're right, Matt, that Christians should be, like, more open to this way of thinking than anyone, but for whatever or whatever series of reasons— um, we retreat to this individualism. And I think a, a lot of it has to do with um, this 
natural supernatural divide the sense that like ultimately your commitment is is from you to god right and if it happens to affect other people um then that's just a bonus but mostly it's about your intentions it's about your personal yeah and i don't know that's there's so many theological currents that would resist that way of thinking if we really like spill out the implications of, of theology yeah it's funny i wonder uh if there's a way in which this is a just a very textbook example of where the left can help Christianity solve some of its own internal problems, because uh, there's this intuitive sense that I think is right, that we're talking about that Christians should be allergic to these things, but for whatever reason, they're not. Uh, well, one reason that leftists don't like Christians is that uh, we built all those things. <laughs> like, it was Christians who made slavery. It was Christians who made capitalism. Uh, there's no getting around that situation. Um, and there are all kinds of ways of dealing with that problem. But, uh, you know, it's even even uh, Pope Francis sort of recently um, in the last couple of years has been talking this language of, uh, you know, Christians are the ones responsible for these things that seem so non-Christian, as opposed to creating a kind of no true Scotsman faith or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I wonder if there's a way that um, the left can help Christianity purge some of its own demons in that way, or at least come to terms with its its legacy. And then conversely, Christians can can hopefully listen to those things and find resources in their own vocabularies that uh, you know, work against those tendencies or something. That would be my hope, anyway. It makes me think back to the conversation we had a few weeks ago about Herbert McCabe. Um, again, when he says, like, you know, Christianity isn't, um, it doesn't have, like, a theory, right? And that, and that like, the sort of, like, leftist modes of thought and critique are, are the addition that Christianity needs to, like, be better than it has been. So on that note, were there any sessions that you found, Drew, particularly interesting and helpful? Like ones that just really stuck out and then stick with you and things that you're still thinking about? Uh, you know, like we said earlier, Matt and I didn't go. Uh, we were sort of perusing the schedule and the talks before we started talking. Um, and some of the titles looked intriguing, interesting and cool. But uh, I'm a master of making really cool titles with substanceless prose. So maybe you could help <laughs> us uh, cut, cut behind the advertising and uh, tell us which one stuck out right. to you. Yeah, so there were a few people that I, I really wanted to see um, whose talks weren't necessarily um, super enlightening, but were just inspiring. Um, so people like Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! And uh, Bosco Sankara from Jacobin and... Um, Ajamu Buraka from he he was the uh, ran as the Green Party running mate this past election season, and he's a board member of Cooperation Jackson, which I didn't know. Are you guys familiar with that? No, I'm not. It's a really exciting um, movement of uh, Black radical organizers in Jackson, Mississippi, who had run um, uh, for they ran a candidate for mayor several years ago and got it uh, someone to fight um, privatization and austerity measures, and um, he had a heart attack within a year, and they lost the seat to a Republican, I believe. But wow. they just um, got his son elected um, in the mayorship this past year. That's um, awesome. But, but like an explicitly um, like socialist uh, group of organizers who have been trying to uh, put together, you know, general assemblies of, of community members and, and stuff. So anyway, that's inspiring. Several inspiring. Um, speakers, and then a few really enlightening speakers um, that I was also excited to see. Uh, so Kiangi Yamato-Taylor was there, um, the author of uh, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. And uh, she talked about racism as, you know, a constant feature of American society, 
Um, but exploring, okay, why is this particular uh, feature of racism and also the, the anti-racism movements like um, Black Lives Matter is what she'd focused on. Um, elsewhere in the conference, they were talking about uh, Standing Rock. Amy Goodman spent a lot of time talking about Standing Rock. Um, but kind of rendering these movements as anti-fascist, as anti-racist. Um, but the a, a lot of these um, presenters were talking about, um, I mean, fascism as kind of a loose... Uh, a loosely connected series of, of cultural um, activities or tendencies um, having less to do with authoritarianism, the way the word typically gets trotted out, but using it more in the sense of a false revolution or like a pseudo, oh, yeah. um, a pseudo socialism. Right. And I think that's the right way to think about it is that um, whatever we could call fascist. And I think the, the whole Trump phenomenon, I would call it proto fascist as a number of people at the conference would probably, um, but it, it's explicitly a false revolution, right? It's making promises it couldn't keep. And even if it kept them, um, it's only for a select group, right? Now, within that group, it is a, a, an anti-capitalist, at least, rhetoric, right? Um, so that's in the air. And that's why it's dangerous, right? Because, um, like, where we go from here, like, something's got to give. So anyway, if fascism is, a, is primarily a scapegoating mechanism, shifting class conscious uh, resistance of, of um, you know, the castification of society into uh, racialized exclusion and um, blame, right? That's racism is the primary way, Kianga was saying, in that the ruling classes have, have divided the working class. And um, that, so that's not a new insight, but to hear it... Um, kind of portrayed with a number of different examples in uh, current events was, I think, helped me to think about ways to connect all these struggles together. Because I think the tendency, I think a lot about, um, have you guys ever read Terry Eagleton's essay on postmodernism? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, where he, he talks about basically intellectual culture, the leftist intellectual culture, um, and probably activism too. He doesn't uh, get into that as much. But since the 60s, kind of the, what we call the new left, right, is basically a failed revolution. It's a response to the failure of, of uh, r radicalism, of whether that's socialism or anarchism or communism or whatever. Um, and it's become kind of this self-devouring uh, or cannibalizing, um, fracturing dynamic where we make it impossible to generate unified social movements just because, you know, identity politics, which not that not to like jump on that is like all bad or something, but there's definitely troublesome aspects of the, the emphasis to identify yourself against other members of the radical class. Right. Um, and so I, I think that was what was really encouraging to me about this conference. And actually that's something that really drew me to the Kianga Yamada Taylor in the first place was after the women's march, there were a number of criticisms of it as being really um, liberal and bourgeois and all these privileged women, you know, white women um, and their, you know, male friends and counterparts, whatever, uh, coming out because finally these policies affect them in a way that they, they have affected, you know, women of color all along um, or trans women or whoever. And they're like, oh, now you get with the program. And Kianga's like, yeah, now you get with the program. That's <laughs> great. Like, why are we why are we taking this moment to, like, put people down yeah. when we should be celebrating, like, um, 
And so I, I think that affirmative moment is what, I mean, that's, that's the reformational uh, side of me, the Dean, that's the, <laughs> that's the whole philosophical tradition at ICS is, is trying to, um, well, I mean, it, it's kind of an, uh, an Augustinian sense of like finding that originary goodness, right. And affirming it um, and, and theorizing evil or whatever as, as some, privation of that in some way that's a that's some cool insight i guess uh it reminds me of this thing that marx said once uh and i'm trying desperately to remember where but i I gotta remember uh somewhere though marx said um that like the bourgeoisie are are the real revolutionary class insofar as they keep creating technologies to stay in power um sort of against the proletariat who who don't uh who have not historically done so uh but i think that's a good example of the ways that like um I don't know, the fracturing of identity politics works against the left a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, well, I wonder if we could maybe start talking a little bit about, um, more generally, Socialism 2017, or what it means to talk about socialist movements this year, um, sort of beyond the conference and in general. Uh, and this is a good place to start, I think, because one thing that I've found kind of troubling about how socialism is emerging after Donald Trump and uh, with the kind of rise of certain publications that have become more more popular over time, uh, i.e. Jacobin Magazine, uh, there's, a, there's a sense in which um, the call to unify under the banner of class uh, is often made to the exclusion of uh, other kinds of oppression that I find really troubling and damaging. Uh, and... I don't know, to take a sort of common example, like Jacobin is constantly getting in trouble for basically saying that, uh, yeah, racism is bad and, you know, we should talk about it. But what really matters is not getting distracted from the real root of all the oppression, which is class. Right. And uh, I don't know, I find that like completely bad and very toxic to unifying like a real movement that could take account of the various ways in which our world is kind of riven by different forms of systemic oppression that are nonetheless, you know, related in intricate kind of networked ways. It's almost too simple of a story to kind of say that, well, if we unify the working class then racism would go away because we would all have a common enemy. And, you know, it's, it just feels so awkward to me. Uh, and I wonder, you know, did you hear that kind of rhetoric there? How do you feel about that kind of rhetoric? Maybe you don't care. I don't know. But uh, it's a problem that I have, I guess. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think that is... Certainly, it's a tendency that I'm always checking in myself, I think, because, I mean, at a, at a psychological level, I mean, I am a member of the working class, like the privileged working class, right? I grad, so, like, if you look at my paycheck, you look at um, how my, my family is, like, scrambling to make ends meet or whatever, like that, that, those are working class phenomena. On the other hand, I'm in a PhD program, like, theoretically, I'm on the track to a middle class job which may or may not exist but um so i you know at at the egotistical level like i would want to identify as a member of yeah a struggling class i can't do that in terms of race or in terms of other things so i think that's a tendency to check right in in someone like myself because yeah i want to be able to say yeah life is hard for me and there's somebody making it hard um but I know that's not true in a lot of ways, right? I, I know that I, I have so many privileges and, and, and belong to more powerful sectors of society and um, and benefit from them. So I, I think you're absolutely right, Dean. And m- thankfully, most of the people at the conference, I think, recognize that too. 
Um, Someone else who addressed this was Sarah Jaffe, um, a radical journalist. And um, I think she, and also Kianga and a number of others, they tread that line really well, like without ever abandoning the sense that like, no, like women's struggles and um, the struggles of the Latina community and the black community and um, LGBT uh, struggles, like obviously these things are all connected. And so there was a session um, that Kianga was a part of on the Kamehameha River Collective, which is about um, kind of one of the original intersectional uh, analysis moments, right, in um, among black feminists, uh, black lesbian feminists. I didn't get a chance to go to that, unfortunately, but I, I'm really interested now in, in kind of the history of that. But the one of the things that Sarah Jaffe said was, well, first of all, like, the working class has never been white, right? The working class has never been primarily white. It's never been primarily male. Um, so we've got to break out of that image, right? The image of Joe the plumber or of <laughs> the the carrier plant workers or whoever Trump yeah. kind of put as the the standard working man. I do. Th- I mean, I do think that like to say that racism has been a constant in America, it. Like, it's an insufficient explanation for acts of racism and, and these kind of spikes in racist activity and rhetoric. And I think most of those can be explained by economic circumstances, which doesn't at all eliminate the, the racism. I think it's a confluence or a conjunction of those kind of oppressive vectors. Um, to me, that doesn't take away from the kind of greater suffering of... Um, communities of color or of women or of LGBT people. Um, to me, it that is the site of conjoint oppression. And so that should be the site of resistance. And um, I don't know that Dean, I'm, I'm guessing you'd want to push back on that, although I'm not entirely sure why. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm suspicious of uh, the or oppression model because I don't think that um, societies are built on singular causes and effects no matter how massive they might spin themselves out and with as many you know complicated uh tendrils might uh extend from say economic oppression i guess there's a part of me that wants to say well after the revolution uh when all the economic oppression is gone and we live in a classless society will people still be homophobic probably will they still be racist probably and is that necessarily an effect of their previous class identities? I would say maybe not. Um, there are ways in which uh, racism motivated, for example, uh, like you couldn't have had the North Atlantic slave trade without racism, uh, despite the fact that that's obviously motivated by capitalism. Obviously, uh, racism was instrumental in uh, reinforcing those capitalist uh, narratives and stopping people from uniting. That's all true. But I think there's a lot of important work in critical race theory that shows there's kind of just more happening. And uh, it seems to me as though the, the story is just frustratingly complex and you kind of have to fight on every front at the same time um, and find some other principle of sufficient unity uh, beyond like helping everyone to come to grips with just their class identity, for example, or uh, trying to convert the uh, the class oppressor within or something uh, alone, you know, so I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, I just think, (laughs) hmm, how would I put this? I guess you could say this is my uh, uh, 
original sin moment uh, paired with your uh, original love moment, or <laughs> original goodness moment. You know, that like, in a way, every single thing is bad, uh, <laughs> even though there might be hopefully something good underneath it that we could tap into. No, I, I think that's really important. I think I would affirm almost everything you said. Yeah. I, I think of capitalism as exacerbating all those tendencies and co op. Yeah, like, yeah. And so to talk about like the revolution, which I'm always like skeptical of anyway, like <laughs> I think it's more about, you know, building the new in the shell of the old, um, that it, it's a, a triage procedure, right? It's, it's trying to find the tactically most, um, I don't know, helping the most in the least amount of time or something like, uh, like psychoanalysis, like has a goal not necessarily of restoring people to full flourishing, but just um, helping. What's the phrase that Freud Freud uses? Um, to like to turn the like neurotic suffering into ordinary unhappiness or something like right. that. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Think, like to give us some breathing space or some like some margin to be able to effectively tackle the like. I don't know. To me, it's it seems like. First of all, economic issues are more acutely like suffered by all of the groups that you mentioned. Um, that in no way detract like to fight on that front in no way detracts from their struggles. It, I, I don't know. I, I think we always have to fight that our ten, our own tendencies towards patriarchy and um, white supremacy and stuff. And you can see that in certain um, kind of class based analyses. There's always that temptation, but I don't think that means that strategy is wrong. I think um, it means you proceed with the knowledge that um, we are always going to be tempted to put, you know, straight white males in in charge and the interests of straight white males in charge. Like, I don't know. That's where I would land on that issue. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Matt, what do you think? Do you have any particular, like, uh, gripes with socialism today or uh, hopes, I guess, um, in terms of how... I don't know, all these disparate threads might get unified or uh, or stopping them from getting further and further divided from each other. Yeah, this is... Um, <laughs> okay, uh, so you guys are having a great back and forth about this issue of, like, uh, class and race. Uh, and I think that's, that's absolutely important <laughs> to have that conversation. That's good. Uh, though I think there's another type of identity politics going on with socialism today. Um, this is based on my own experience of being a person on twitter and basically that's it so maybe <laughs> maybe these aren't all the best takes it's good field work actually. <laughs> yeah i guess so um maybe like last week it was before the conference started um there's this like kind of eruption of of uh, interesting identity politics of a different kind uh in leftist twitter at least um and uh, this is like maybe my one the the thing that caused me the most anxiety about socialism in 2017 um and drew maybe you saw this at the at the conference maybe you didn't i hope you didn't anyways uh so this article got published by socialist alternative um i don't really know much about them as a group i know that they're like a trotskyist organization and uh i i don't know they seem nice enough i guess um anyways they, they published this article that was basically um i'm sure like everyone on twitter saw it but it was just like hey, the DSA is really popular right now and they have lots of momentum. Maybe the DSA should start a new political like front, a new political party. Um, that was like the, uh, that was the, um, 
the suggestion from the social alternative. Anyways, the uh, the DSA on Twitter at least, and on and on the DSA dank meme stash on Facebook, which is the worst the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, They all like hated this article and said, Hey, no, that's a bad idea. Social alternative just wants our members. They're just jealous that we're bigger than them. Like lots of like stupid uh, commentary. (laughs) And uh, anyways, I think that socialism in 2017, you can't really talk about it without um, the complete stupidity of people getting upset that their socialist group is better than the other socialist group. Or like those, like those divisions (laughs) of like, like whose fringe leftist group is better um so uh drew did you see any of that at at socialism 2017 i didn't actually see that much of that thankfully but it was it the awareness of that was in the air and it made me think once again of this is why religious people are needed because if anybody knows how to deal (laughs) with factionalism and sectarianism and is aware of the the dangers that come with like the infinite fractals of uh, petty divisions, like it, it's religious people, right? Um, that's not to say, and so to get back to a major theme of the conference, which is, you know, unity out of division, recognize that everyone was like upfront about the dangers of that, um, of, of papering over real differences and real injustices where the people who tend to get hurt the most tend to get. Uh, their voices tend to get suppressed even within the resistance movements, right? Like that, everyone was talking about that. Um, And so there was a lot of talk about a united front. Um, And and so this was uh, talking about um, bridging the divide, not necessarily between any of these demographics that we've been discussing, but between radicals and liberals, or or centrists, I guess. Um, (laughs) People more, more amenable to kind of bourgeois society. And I probably nearer that than a lot of my compatriots or comrades, right? Like, um, but uh, it's all about the united front of these tactical um, alliances, and they contrasted that with a popular front, and Trotsky writes about this, which is giving up the, you know, giving the reins to the the same um, kinds of, I I guess today we might talk about it in terms of nonprofits as funded by ultimately the same capitalist class that you're fighting, right? It's the bone that they throw to um, the the people working like dogs, right? Um, so the difference, and I was really unclear about the difference because people kept using this terminology, like we need a united front between all these, uh, because we on the left have a tendency towards factionalism, right? We, we keep shooting ourselves in the foot by infinite divisions, um, but then saying, okay, we also can't like, uh, we can't compromise like these principles matter and uh, and so one of the key compromises that we, they address is like giving the keys to the kingdom to the democrats again and again who then of course led in the barbarians right like everybody in yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh so i was like well what's the difference between these two like the the united front on the one hand the popular front on the other and somebody Set and in, in retrospect, it's pretty obvious like what the difference is. But it, it's who is doing the organizing, right? Is it um, that we are lending our voices to the same kinds of, um, well, uncharitably, it would be like a milk toast kind of um, grant-sponsored activism, right? Uh, or are we taking it into our own hands? And if those people want to come on board, we want to have them. But like we put the radical um, agenda first and foremost and whoever 
whoever can unite in that, right? Uh, come on board. Or link, maybe not come on board, but like link arms or something. So yeah. thinking about that uh, theme in relation to some of the things that Dean is discussing, I, w- I was in no... Um, I had actually thought about your concern, Dean, for the, the loss of all of these other fronts that we need to be fighting on, right, in the interest of economic justice. And just looking at the composition of this conference, like it was... I don't, I don't even want to hazard a guess as to like gender proportions. It was at least half and half male. Well, with, you know, some gender non-conforming folks as well. But, um, in terms of like ethnic and racial identities, there seemed to be a lot of people of color represented, um, not only, uh, in the audience, but also among the moderators and the presenters and, you know, the key, the keynotes as well. Um, I don't think there was any, yeah, there was no way that uh, that problem was going to rear itself um, at this particular conference. Now, that doesn't apply to the rest of socialism dumb, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, I guess maybe uh, that would be one good transferable skill between Christianity and socialism is a kind of ecumenical sensibility uh, that's capable of I don't know, both respecting people's doctrinal hangups and also trying to find ways in which we can all, uh, you know, sit at the same table or something, uh, especially when it comes to issues of justice. Um, You know, it's like there are a lot of reasons I don't like Jacobin magazine, but I do read uh, the articles in it because I think class is important. Uh, Class oppression is important. it's in the same way that, you know, it's important to me to read uh, people who are writing on black liberation, but who nonetheless might be liberals, because there's something wrong about uh, an inability to understand the way in which all those kinds of things uh, overlap and reinforce each other and build the other one, you know, in these kind of complicated relationships. Uh, but those kinds of gaps i guess don't preclude the importance of those conversations and i think that that conference from what you're saying seems to be uh, a material manifestation of exactly that hopefully anyway (laughs) yeah are there other tendencies that concern you like you said you don't really like reading jacobin like what what else is (laughs) in the water that um you find to be a bit poisonous yeah i don't know uh (laughs) i think the biggest thing for me i don't know uh if anybody else shares this, but I assume they probably do, is just the magnitude of the problems, right? Uh, we had this conversation with Lambert Zeidabart a while back, an ICS prof, uh, and the big takeaway quote from that was, uh, revolutionism, what it used to be, um, by which uh, Lambert basically meant society is very complicated, more complicated even now than it was, you know, 100 years ago when the Bolsheviks won a revolution against a czar. <laughs> and... Uh, I think there's a sense for me that these these kinds of intricate, complicated uh, technological, um, financial situations that we find ourselves in uh, are very hard to find, like like a, a one handle that everybody could grab onto by which you could kind of pull it down or something. Um, Matt and I were talking earlier about how like one of the perennial frustrations of being involved in the left is that. You can see all these organizations and conferences and everything else, but no one's actually really doing anything uh, significant enough to be, you know, like, I don't know, a a real challenge to the powers that be. Like, one of the big ironies of the Socialism 2017 conference 
is uh, it was held at like the Hyatt Hotel, uh, which is fine. Like people have to hold things in places that can sustain X amount of people. But it's like if you had a massive gathering of socialists in a hotel and the hotel didn't get like burned down or like there wasn't a massive like organized strike there the next day or something, then it's kind of like why even have it? Uh which isn't to say that it was useless. I don't know. I wasn't there or anything. Um, but I guess that's my my the poison in the water, as you would say, is that uh, these ideas are very good and very inspiring and hopeful and encouraging. But the material uh, ramifications don't seem to sustain the kind of uh, inspiration that you can get from, you know, the romance of socialism or something like that. Yeah. And that insight about the hotel did not go uh, unobserved at the conference. <laughs> um, Ahmed Shaki talked about that in the the plenary on saturday night um just the, well first of all he, he called it a supposedly four-star hotel um, <laughs> but, then, but then talking about how incomprehensible that would be the world over right and he's like but think about where else we could hold it right universities is like uh and he went on this kind of lewis black like rant about it um about the you know you got to pay for everything and apparently this was the most feasible or whatever but no i'm allergic to those kind of things it feels so wrong i mean i took the the l up to the north side each night to to stay at a friend's place um but plenty of people were staying in the hotel or whatever it, just, it seems very um yeah c- <laughs> counterproductive yeah it's like why not have it at like a public park or like a library or you know a vaguely socialist institution that already exists in a capitalist society yeah exactly and so i um what I'm thankful for is so just to put in a plug for this this local group, the the Kentucky Workers League, um, where I've learned a lot of things about activism because I, the things that I've known about the left have largely been Western Marxist intellectuals, right? And so, like actively actually learning about activism has been kind of informed through the people I've known here in Lexington, um, and their whole strategy is dual power, which is basically the Black Panthers approach. It's the approach of people in like Cooperation Jackson. Um, and it's tr- providing actual, it's trying to provide actual services and build actual institutions under the nose of privatization, right? And, and like privatized um, service and, and goods production um, and using that as a way to build a base of, and, and just, uh, I mean, it, it's how it, certain anarchists talk about um, the the prefigurative kind of uh, vision for collective action, right? Like that. Well, this is let's just start living the way that we want to see the world, and that gets crushed in a lot of ways, and it's not always possible. But I think um, that, in conjunction with tendencies like worker cooperatives and um, the Oh, there's a whole bunch of exciting things happening right now, and I want to be a part of all of them and bring them all <laughs> to my backyard, like literally. Like there's a, um, we've got a nice park in our backyard, and there's the the community group that meets <laughs> there um, that I've been involved with, and and I want to radicalize it as much as possible. <laughs> there's a guy there that I, like I want to learn from. who's talking about being a member of like an affiliate group of the Black Panthers back in the '60s, and like I'm like, man, I there's so much to learn. Like, and yeah. I think that was the thing to take away from the conference too is that. Activists have a tendency to reinvent the wheel, and it's partly out of necessity because our leaders keep getting jailed and shot. Like, <laughs> um, to, to be able to reclaim a lot of history that is not just you know white male led leftists, but these um, kind of 
uh, I was going to say minority reports, but that, you know, that's a little on the nose. Uh, <laughs> people have been doing this the world over out of sheer necessity in response to, um, I'm going to say capitalism, but Dean, you're right to say like these forces of oppression that have, have long predated anything uh, related to privatization, right? Um, and I think we have to learn from that. And I certainly have a lot to learn from that. Um, like, I, I think one of my frustrations with this, though, so I mean, like, I, I don't know, it's funny that it's in the Hyatt, like, but I get it. It's important. They need to, they need a place to do it. Um, <laughs> but like, you're right, people are doing this the world over, and they're doing it like much better than in the United States. Um, like, they like people actually have parties other places and like, you know, are, are doing something very positive. And not just like in Western con- countries either, like, you know, uh, Dean and I are like obsessed with the Philippines and like that's always the place I'm looking to. They, they have like, they have parties, they have fronts, they like, they just know what they're doing, they have their act together. And it seems like there's so much, hmm, th- there's like, there's momentum and there's energy and people are like, I think, ready to do stuff. But but for some reason, it just doesn't ever really materialize in, into the, into these like, forms of like actual political engagement in the united states um like uh I, re- I remember one time i was at this uh marxism conference in massachusetts and jody dean was speaking there and she's very cool um and jo- jody dean gave this this like kind of infamous talk at this point where she's just like uh, we need a new communist party and uh at the end of the talk everyone was like yeah sounds good sign me up um, like literally, there wasn't. There were old. There were old white professors that were like saying that. I mean, of course they were, um, but but then like no one, no one did it. Like no one signed them up. Like, <laughs> and and like that's kind of I guess a move that I keep seeing happen at whenever I'm around like leftists, and I don't, I don't actually. I mean, I live in a small town, so I don't find myself around leftists very often. But they're like, yeah, we should like we should do something. Yeah, a party would be great. Yeah, a platform for this would be good. But I just like don't see it happening. I don't know why like these steps though don't materialize in 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 like the party structure or or something like that. I mean like the DSA is great, the social alternative is great, PSL great, but like why do they why do they say stay so disparate, do you think? Um, I get if I had to hazard a guess, I think it's because um our model of activism has largely so um, have you guys read um, Jane McAlevey at all? McAlevey? I'm not sure how to say no, it. No, I haven't. Okay, so she's uh, been an, a labor organizer for several decades with the... I think she's worked for several federations, but kind of on the CIO model, kind of the old world um, labor organizing model, which is explicitly class conscious, you know, like assuming class warfare, like there's no... Um, it, 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 anti-collaborationist and um she was involved with like the the chicago teachers union strike and um she's been organizing uh like uh nurses in hospitals and stuff but in she says that healthcare and education and one other sector are probably the uh the kind of economic demographics to to look at for actual labor organizing anyway she wrote a book called um no shortcuts that came out last year and she talks she breaks down activism into like four different categories and she talks about how the if you can think about like concentric rings in terms of their proximity to capital um we have like charities right which are largely funded as nonprofits, um ultimately driving deriving their money either from the government which of course 
takes their marching orders a lot of times from you know the the needs of of the wealthy and, and companies um, or from grants from the foundations run by the same people and then there's activists who um uh, kind of speak on behalf of these groups uh, of groups of the oppressed right and um kind of dedicate their time towards um speaking out in uh, as representatives of them in, in their interests. And then she talks about mobilizers, which are these popular actions, right? But like oftentimes momentary, um, not necessarily strategic, but you know, you get a lot of people out like for the science march or a lot of people out for um, the women's march or whatever. And it's kind of the thing that you were saying with Jody Dean, right? Who incidentally, she came to speak at Lexington last year. And I remember coming away thinking, man, here's another person who needs to be talking with a religious figure because yeah. everything she said sounds like, so, it sounded yeah. really fundamentalist, first of all. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just deeply religious. Anyway, um, that's beside the point. So that so mobilization it, as an important moment in organizing, but she says what we call organizing um, tends to refer to all those activities, but it should really be reserved for the, the hard work of relationship building um, among well, primarily peer to peer, and um, she said the old CIO model, the kinds of um, I mean, when communists and socialists were organizing people in the twenties and thirties, and it, you know it was spreading like wildfire across America, um, and even earlier, kind of with the the um, IWW and uh, you know Eugene V Debs and whatever, that like organizing has to be face to face. It has to be um, primarily relational, and you map out your relation. You you map out the power structure and understand the pressure points of of um, kind of what you're up against. But you you map the assets that you have, and you're, you're extremely aware of the people in your proximity and these networks of um, like social relations, right? And to get away from that vanguardist mindset, which has kind of driven the labor movement, if you can call it a movement, since the '70s, if not earlier right which is just top down and so it's just it, it's like what socialism should be which is just bottom up right grassroots to use the buzzword um but like actual organizing as opposed and following through and expecting people to participate and funding it through dues right not relying on external funding um but like a self-generating movement um I think that was kind of an in answer to a question you yeah, had, Matt. But I don't. It, it is. It is totally. And I think that I mean the face to face organizing is awesome. And like that, I one hundred percent agree that that is a thing you need to do. Uh, I guess the difficulty is though that, um, okay, this is maybe a weird insight, but like the 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 face to face organizing and sort of like building that you do on the ground with people has to be connected to like a larger goal or organization or set of practices or ideology or else it just sort of falls flat at this like at this very basic level before it ever gets like momentum enough to register like on a national level um so i'm like all for those things but i feel like it just needs to connect to like a larger sort of organ or or piece that this is this is um continuing my critique of the dsa of which i paid dues um to I, i don't know for better or worse that like there are all these little like um, you know chapters every single place and that's awesome and they all have these different sort of like local organizing tactics that they do and that's also good but there's like no like 
fundamental ideology of the DSA, except that, like, I don't know, democratic socialism is good and, like, single-payer healthcare is a thing that people want, which are, are again, like, great goals, but there's just not, like, um, it's not an organization that has a vision for the future, and I think that's some some of, like, I guess what I don't like is that organizing is good, but we have to have an idea of, like, trajectory or direction that the organizing is going, and that's what I see missing in a lot of places. Let me just wrap up um, kind of in response to what you're saying. Yeah, please. So I'm sitting here with my kids. Something I've been thinking about a lot is child care. So we talked about child care at the conference. Um, I think a, to, to address what you were talking about, Dean, with um, not letting economic concerns get in the way of other social justice fights, right? I think rethinking child care is a huge one just because of the lingering um, sexism built into our economy. Um, even, like my wife and I have tried to make all kinds of different arrangements work to take care of our kids simultaneously with me being in school and working. Um, and we can't like <laughs> it. You just can't like. There's no yeah. good way to do it. And so I've been thinking a lot about like what would a dual power um, daycare look like? Oh like, my god! What, yes. What would a community driven um, <laughs> model for like? Thinking up and down our street, there are so many single parents at home with their kids right now, right? It's just stupid. Like, we're all sitting in our different places. Like, we could be pooling our resources. That's the kind of future I want, right? Um, and what the right will say in response to something like that is, oh, you want the state to raise your kids. I'm like, sure. If we are the state, that's totally fine with me. Like, <laughs> yeah, man. That's a that's good, though. I mean, because uh, domestic labor is real labor, and I think that... Um people forget that a lot of times uh so yeah. uh talking about ways to communize uh daycare is awesome and uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry and it's my... one of the things that i want to study in my in my dissertation actually is um a lot kind of feminist economics and thinking yeah. through care work and uh partly because i'm so bad at offering my wife a real like <laughs> uh like putting it like practicing what i preach essentially uh so listeners you can't really see us right now but uh drew has two babies on him and they are like <laughs> pulling his headphones off, and it is the cutest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, yeah, huge fan. Yeah, I'm gonna have to wrap up, guys. Sorry. No, that's cool. Uh, you, you do you, man. That's great. Uh, thanks for talking with us, though. We appreciate it. Listen, I, I need to put this back on. <laughs> uh, this is the best. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's, it's really uh, cool. All right. Well, uh, good luck uh, commonizing your daycare situation soon, Drew. <laughs> and uh, it was so great to talk to you. Um, hopefully, we'll see you in a socialist church one day in the future. Sounds good. Peace, brothers. Later. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Uh, thanks for Drew being on the show. Thank you to Drew's uh, cute children who also uh, gave us a good way to stop talking <laughs> and dragging that conversation <laughs> out. That was the best thing. Uh, high point of my day for sure. Um, cool. So uh, please leave us a review on iTunes so we can lightly mock you um, and then also talk our podcast up. It definitely helps, I guess, the algorithms. Tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter. We have so many Twitter followers right now. Last week we just blew up. It's nuts. Um, 50 followers in like a week that was a yeah monumental a occasion bump. yeah that lit crit guy bump that's good <laughs> good stuff all right so follow us on all the social medias and uh join the reading group if you haven't okay see you next week Bye-bye. <laughs> i don't want to get up for church in the morning church in the morning souls alive 
Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up